Good deal, man. Well, I'm really excited about this episode. We got Jonathan Mitchell, uh, who's become a really good friend of mine and a member of the factory family at KPF um, over the past, I don't know, roughly, I guess, basically since I started physical therapy. Um, uh, was that February, early February 2021? Uh, spent a lot of time with this guy and got to know him uh, personally and professionally. And um, he's got some, got some things to say. He's got some things to talk about, and I think that they are very useful um, to be able to help people in the way they live uh, physical, through physical activity uh, and healthy lifestyles. And so um, this is Jonathan Mitchell. Jonathan, man, thanks for coming on and talking to us for some time with us, buddy. I mean, absolutely. absolutely. Um, tell us a little bit about you, because this is what this podcast is about. This podcast is to make our guests feel like a rock star, superstar. So many times you hear people on a podcast and you think it's a celebrity or something like that. Um, and I think your dog will steal the show here as it should. Um, and just tell us a little bit about yourself, man, because we want to spotlight you, what you do, how awesome you are in terms of what you can provide for other people on a daily basis, man. Yeah, thank you. So uh, I grew up in Columbia, South Carolina. Um, growing up, I played probably every sport you can imagine. Uh, I was good at all of them. I never excelled at any of them. <laughs> so that's why I kept I kept sport hopping. Uh, middle school, I played basketball and golf. Uh, after basketball, went on to be in the marching band, actually. And then um, from there, played football, lacrosse, ultimate frisbee. And then in college, I was a collegiate rower. Um, after I rode for about three years um, and graduated. I uh, took a year off between PT school um, and grad school. And as I did that, I was the, I was the rowing coach at Clemson. Well, I was the novice rowing coach for the club team. Um, so I did that, but I was also a kickboxing trainer at Nine Round, if any of y'all have been to Nine Round. Um, so during my year off, I kind of did both of those. Um, and backing up a little bit in high school, the thing that kind of got me into the PT and fitness world <clears throat> was, of course, you know, my athletic background, playing all those sports. Um, but two, um, I was a big science guy. <clears throat> and in high school, they, they let us major um, in something. And with that major, uh, they let us um, take some elective courses in that major. And I chose, because of my athletic background, I chose sports science. <clears throat> and during those classes, I, um, I got exposed to a lot of different professions in the health world. And I don't know why, but physical therapy kind of um, stuck out to me. Um, and so after, after I took a lot of those classes um, in high school, I decided I wanted to do whatever track it took me to to get to be a physical therapist, even though I'd, I'd never... <laughs> Ironically, I'd never been injured with all these sports that I played. Never got injured. I never went to PT or anything. Lucky uh, man. I know. Knock on wood. Um, but I, you know, just learning about the profession and how I enjoy being around people and athletes and um, just enjoy pushing people. Um, that led me into Clemson and majoring in food science and nutrition. Um, got all the prereqs I needed to go to PT school. PT school. Um, and then, like I said, on my year off, you know, I coached. Um, and coaching, I think the year off wasn't planned. Um, I took a year off because I uh, <laughs> come to find out I didn't complete all the paperwork I needed in my application to PT school. So obviously I got denied. Um, so I, I ended up taking a year off, but honestly, that was probably the best thing that ever could happen to me um, because I got to coach um, not only rowers, but I also got to coach people in the gym. Um, and doing both of those kind of reaffirmed my passion for, you know, pushing people um, to the limits, making them better, helping them reach goals. Um, we took one of the biggest regattas in the country um, in Daddale Regatta. Um, my rowers who had never rowed before college, 
so they had never rode before I started coaching them. Took them all the way to Dadvale, the biggest regatta, and they uh, placed fourth by like a tenth of a second um, against all these schools and rowers who had been um, rowing for years. Um, took these kids who had never touched an oar before their first year of college and took them to the biggest regatta in the nation and placed, you know, just a tenth of a second away from a medal. Um, and, you know, the pride that I got for them and how proud I was for them um, and excited I was was like, man, doing this kind of stuff is what I want to do for a living. I want to I want to help people reach their goals. I want to help people like see people succeed and kind of push them to their limits to get there. Um, whether that means making fun of them to push them a little bit, I, I kind of play around in the <laughs> in the clinic as you've seen. Yeah. Um, you know, whatever it is that kind of spurs them and kind of gets them going is I'm, that's one thing I'm good at is kind of finding that little, a little button to push where I just kind of push it and kind of push them. Um, so I think all of that combined is kind of how I got to where I am today. I love it, man. Some of that stuff I didn't know before we dive into that, because you have some interesting parallels kind of hitting the two spaces that we both represent. <clears throat> Excuse me. You have actually kind of dove into both of them. Before we go there, what instrument did you play in the marching band? Uh, marching band was alto saxophone, but my claim to fame was a symphonic band where I, I played the tenor saxophone. Um, I played tenor sax for six years. Um, was in the jazz band, symphonic band, and uh, junior year of high school, I reached my ultimate goal of first chair all-state band. Um, so at one point, I was the best, the best tenor sax in the state, which was awesome. Um, so yeah, that was that's my music background. I wish I, I wish I still played, but I haven't touched that in a while. So all this time we've spent together, we've never talked about this. I also played the alto sax. Really? Growing up, yeah, yeah, I played. Right. Um, so before the alto sax in high school, I played the uh, viola. Okay, so I started with the viola. I was absolutely terrible. I, I was, if there's first chair, second chair, third chair, I was the last chair. Um, actually, I wasn't that bad. I was able to beat out a few people. Um, but then when they told me that, because I played football, when they told me that when I went to college or high school that I had to be in the marching band, there was some kind of deal where if you keep pushing with this, you have to be in the marching band. And I was like, I don't know that my coach is going to let me play the first half, not be in the locker room at halftime, go to, to be on the marching band and then come back and play. So um, I switched to the saxophone and I loved it. Um, I got decent. I could read music and all that, but I, like you, I wish I would have held on to it, ended up giving it to my youngest brother. And uh, he ended up playing for a few years too. But to this day, uh, saxophone is probably one of my favorite instruments. So that's pretty cool, man. Yeah, what's funny about that too is like uh, the reason I played football was because I hated marching bands so bad that they were like the only way you can because you if you were in symphonic band which I loved I love symphonic band playing the concert stuff if you were in symphonic band you had to be in marching band no matter what unless you played a full sport well I did my freshman year of high school I did marching band. Hated it. Hated every second of it. The football team goes on to win the state championship in our first varsity season. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to go play football. I'm a big guy. I'm going to go play football. Get out of marching band. Go play football. And, uh, yeah, that's how my football career came about. That way I could get started. Chronic band, but not have to uh, march. So it looks like we both use football to get out of marching band, huh? <laughs> That's funny, man. Um, so, you know, obviously you went through <clears throat> through high school, went into college. Um, during that year off, man, you got a chance to um, experience what we refer to as, as, as coaching um, mm -hmm. slash training a little bit, if you would take a, a slight step back as far as the nuances of it. And then you also got a chance to, as you are now, work in physical therapy. Um, there are some very nuanced things that separate what we do, obviously, as far as capacity goes and things of that nature. But having been on that side where you're looking at kind of a high performance, you're looking at a nine round situation in nine round, it's, you know, 30 minutes, it's, you know, time kind of stuff. The people that are coming there, while they might not be, you know, world-class athletes, they are 
physically fit enough to perform at a high pace and do some pretty, pretty unique things. Um, meanwhile, on the other side of that for yourself, you've been working, you're working with people who are literally coming off an injury and can't pick up their arm. Like, I mean, you take myself, for instance, I, I couldn't pick up a two and a half pound dumbbell, couldn't pick up my own daggum arm. So what did you learn and how did those two experiences kind of help you um, become better at either one of them? Um, I think, I think it really helped in a way that I've learned how to motivate people in a way that, you know, I can push them, but I don't push them too far. Um, I think there's a lot of therapists out there that just, they try too hard. They, they give people way too much weight, um, way too much resistance to certain exercises. And they're just, they're just doing stuff that just sure the person's doing it, but with all the compensation and problems like that, um, they're not doing it well. And so I think it's, um, it really taught me how to one, get specific with things. Um, and being a trainer and kind of watching people move really helped me as well. I could pick out, um, different movement patterns and things like that. Even before I got into PT school, just watching, um, you know, the kickboxers, the rowers, um, and kind of watching the way that they move, um, really helped me get into PT school and then kind of see that in my own patients. Um, so being able to see that kind of stuff and start to notice and nitpick um, from being a trainer and kind of pushing people to like, um, you know, lift, um, lift certain things or, you know, reach personal records, reach personal bests, things like that, um, without going too far and kind of emotionally tearing them down, yeah. uh, I think is what kind of the biggest thing that kind of helped carry over into the PT world. Um, balance between criticism, pushing, but also praising um, to keep that person, you know, involved and wanting to do better. Because I yeah. feel a lot of people criticize a lot and then they never build that person back up and say, like, man, I can't do this right. Why can't I do this right? Uh, and mm -hmm. so keep trying and keep trying and nobody's like, you know, I appreciate your effort. Like, this looks good. We're just, we're almost there. Just keep, keep working. We got it. Um, right. I think kind of taking that from my coaching and training experience um, really helped kind of lead me. In. I love that. Yeah. To, to your point in that regard, my, uh, in college, I had a coach that uh, he was very good at belittling you as a player. Uh, it, it would be in the film room, would it be on the field. He was very good at tearing you down, but he wasn't such a fan of giving you praise when some, you did something correct in order to lift you up after kind of quote unquote tame you down a little bit. And that was something that I picked up uh, in college in terms, because I already, always knew kind of like yourself, that this is the path I wanted to go. So learning that from him or what not to do rather was kind of very similar to that. So, and I know having worked with you as a patient, I have appreciated that myself in regards to the uh, attention to detail. And <laughs> I remember this one particular time I was doing an exercise. I can't remember exactly what it was. You told me to do so many repetitions of something and you stepped over to go record what I was doing. And I kept going and I went further and I went further and you came back and I was like, man, this is a little tired, man. This hurt kind of hurts. He's like, well, how many did you do? I said, I did X numbers like, well, I told you to do this many. I didn't tell you to do that many. Calm down. You know, don't, don't be doing too much. Whereas some people like to reward that overzealous. I got to push hard. I got to do this kind of thing. Be very understanding of when the time is to come pull back and when the time to go forward and push. I think that, that's extremely useful coming from a patient perspective yeah. of yours as well. Um, having you talked about seeing movement patterns and feeling like that was kind of a real natural thing for you obviously going through the coaching and through the training the formal education on movement as a physical therapist as a trainer let's kind of dive into a little bit into the um very uh the, the skill sets that you worked with so you started working first and foremost as a coach with crew with rowing um, in today's fitness world, you see rowing a lot, whether it be with the uh, Concept 2 rower uh, that's got wind resistance or you've got the water rowers or some other facilities. What are some, um, and you've talked about this a lot, we we're kind of talking I think, a little bit today about the hips and how that's been affected by your uh, 
growing experience. What are some of the uh, movement compensations and, and issues that you see that uh, develop from athletes with either bad rowing posture or with overdoing the rowing? Um, with rowing in particular, um, there's probably two of the biggest things is uh, if we don't have the right hip mobility. Um, so with the rowing stroke at the catch where you're, where you're about to kind of push and pull as hard as you can, if you don't have the hip flexion there and those hips aren't able to flex up, you know, to that level, what's going to happen is you're going to get a lot of compensation through the lower back and upper back. Um, so one of the biggest things that I see with rowers is they've got upper back and middle back pain um, or discomfort because they're trying to compensate so much with that kind of lower reach like this mm -hmm. and, um, because their hips don't move as well. Or, you know, the same thing kind of happens at the ankle with with how much hip flexion you need for um, a rower. Uh, it's a little different in a boat, but on the rower, um, that ankle has to move kind of like that. And as you're, you kind of push, and then as you get it up to the catch, we get that motion, then you push. Um, and so if we don't have the right ankle mobility, that hip's not going to be able to move as well. And so you're going to find all those kind of compensation patterns in the lower back, the upper back, um, as well as I see a lot of external rotation of the hips where the hips kind of dive out that way as the person's coming up to the catch um, to compensate for that hip flexion um, and to be able to use as much hip mobility as I can before they start compensating for their back. I'm, me in particular, I do that. Uh, when I when I go up to the catch, I don't I don't have good hip flexion. I know the good thing about me is I know my limits. I don't have good mm -hmm. hip flexion, so I do compensate by, you know, kind of looking almost like a frog as you go up to the top because those hips kind of turn out that way, mm -hmm. um, and I kind of round my back a little bit because I've got short arms. So when I try to reach as far as I need to, um, when I was a rower, because the more water you get as a rower, the faster you're going to go. Well, I've got I got short legs and I got poor hip flexion, and I got really short arms for my body composition. So I had to compensate everywhere I yeah. could. So because of that, you know, my hips would go out a little bit. I'd round my upper back a lot um, as I went up to that catch. Rather than being kind of up in this tall position, I'd be a little mm -hmm. bit more here because I, I had to get as much water as I could. And that kind of translated, translates over to the rower a little bit as well. Gotcha. Um, those are some things uh, I wanted you to answer that question because as people listen to this, like I said, rowing happens a lot. We row often, uh, like I said, it's become more of a, uh, it's not just a treadmill and the elliptical that's out there as forms of conditioning nowadays. And so there are some that, uh, that tend to row. Ski erg is another one that I'm sure you see tons of issues, um, which we'll, we'll dive into that one here in just a second. Um, but after we talk about kickboxing, when you were working at nine round, and for the people that aren't familiar with nine round, that may be watching or listening, um, give us a little overview of what nine round looks like and kind of the, the premise behind it. And then what are some things that you have seen with uh, just a general population that come in trying to do high intensity activities before they're ready to do high intensity activities? Yeah. Um, so what nine round is, is kind of exactly what it sounds like. It's nine rounds. Uh, it's a high intensity interval training um, where you got nine rounds. Each round is three minutes. Um, the first round is usually kind of a little bit of a cardio type of high intensity. They often did a lot of jump rope, a lot of um, burpee things, um, lunges, maybe like running around the building, um, something like that, just to kind of get the heart rate up a little bit. Round two is usually kind of a resistance type of exercise, whether it be shoulder press combined with curls, tricep extensions, skull crush, whatever it may be. Sometimes they did med ball slams. Um, it's more of a, a little bit more of kind of what we do at nice performance where it's kind of that resistance, but also a little bit of keeping your heart rate up rather than um, uh, just pushing you with weights. It's more of we, we use lower, lower, lower weights, high repetitions, just to kind of get that strength and that resistance in, but also keep the heart rate up. Round three was a double-ended bag. That one has a coordination uh, <laughs> round. And then four through seven were heavy bags. 
um, where you would punch, you'd do punching combos, kicking combos. Um, sometimes we use the bags for different ab exercises, things like that, um, just to keep the heart rate up, but also get a lot of trunk strength with all the punching, um, get that high intensity interval training. Round eight was a speed bag, and round nine was usually a core exercise of some sort. Um, and kind of doing all that for three minutes, and then between each round, you had a 30 minute or 30 second uh, active rest break <laughs> where you were doing like high knees, jumping jacks, yeah. um, things like that. Um, what was the second half of that question? I got lost. Um, and so, with that being said, I love nine round. Nine round, I used to do it a lot. Uh, I think his name was Shannon, the guy that founded yep. it. Mm -hmm. um, met him back with the guy we used to work for, and I got in the fitness industry. Uh, where they were good friends, and so got a chance to go do it a lot, and I love it. So yeah, this is part of Greenville. Yeah, yeah, all over Greenville, um, locations everywhere, um, and I enjoyed it myself. So when you are going through this, as you said, some of it's high intensity. NFA trainer is not um, educated enough to know what they're looking for in terms of being able to help someone go through high intensity activity or regress things. What are some of the things that you saw for people that were trying to perform high intensity exercise when they weren't ready? What were some of the things that you saw as a, as a trainer and that maybe helped you uh, realize that, hey, now as a therapist, these are some things that I'm familiar with what you were trying to do, but you couldn't do. Yeah, I think, I think that comes down to a lot of like the movement dysfunction stuff and people would pick up weights, for example, that they shouldn't have been picking up um, because they were too heavy. Mm -hmm. um, and because of that, what happens is you start to compensate elsewhere. Um, and so you're not targeting the muscles that you want to target because you're kind of going through these compensatory strategies in order to do it right. And because of that, sometimes say they were doing a goblet squat wrong or we're using way too much weight. Um, you'd get a lot of knee issues because their knees would dive in, um, or they'd get like some neck stuff because, you know, that weight pulling them too far forward, um, they kind of end up in this position here where they're trying to keep their head up, but also do this. Um, and so the biggest thing was you see people, <laughs> this doesn't, this isn't just nine round, it's kind of every gym that I've seen. People get prideful in the amount of weight that they can lift. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. They just they push themselves a little bit more than they probably should because they're they're not doing the exercise right. They're just doing what they think is right, but they don't have the body awareness to know that what they're doing is not targeting the muscles that they are supposed to be targeting with that given exercise. Um, and so I saw a lot of <clears throat> like at nine round, I saw a lot of knee, a lot of knee stuff. Uh, a lot of ankle stuff from the kicking and twisting and the pivoting mm -hmm. uh, because, and that also goes with the knee as well, because people, um, especially the older population that had never done anything athletic coming in, um, they don't even know how to pivot well. And so yeah. kind of going off of that there, you know, if somebody's trying to pivot and kick a bag, but their foot's stuck to the floor like cement, you're going to get a lot of rotational aspects of that knee which if they're not used to training like that can cause some irritation issues right. um, so it, it was more of people would try to just jump into it without kind of starting from the bottom um, and using just too much weight or trying too many repetitions or something like that to kind of aggravate certain structures gotcha um, <clears throat> the kicking aspect you talked about the ankle from the punching aspect and obviously that rotary aspect did you ever see any issues with wrist elbows and shoulders um shoulders yes um there would be a good amount of shoulder issues uh wrists surprisingly no but i think a lot of that was due to the wrist wraps that you wear um i know me in particular it was more so my knuckle um it was always my right middle knuckle I I don't know what it was. It always got me. Um, but I did see a lot of shoulders. Um, and we're doing this shoulder clinic uh, in a couple of weeks at uh, night's performance. I can go over a lot of it. But, you know, with, with shoulder stuff, one, it was because of, you know, all the punching, all the repetitive motion. But two, 
whenever we'd get like jump ropes or anything overhead, um, the mobility of certain things like the upper back and uh, yeah, that thoracic extension just wasn't there uh, mm -hmm. for people and kind of <clears throat> pushing through that on top of the repetitive motion of uh, the punching, I saw a lot of shoulder stuff. Yeah, you, you stole, uh, you did very nicely with my segue right there. You stole yeah. that worked out well. Um, and on top of that, so you talked about the compensation with the shoulder, with the uh, spine flexion extension where it shouldn't be. Um, to go back to the skiing, um, you know, kickboxing, these, there's a couple gyms that have opened up kickboxing gyms, which again, I, I enjoyed the workout thoroughly, the high paced stuff. And it, for me, it was something different, never having done any kind of combat sport. It was kind of fun to go in there and do that. Um, and again, as rowing has now become more of a mainstream form of conditioning, uh, conditioning piece, so has the skier. Um, essentially just as a rower, indoor rower, you've got an indoor skier to simulate uh, skiing cross country or uphill, if you will. It's definitely not downhill skiing. It is not nearly as uh, lower body dominant or as effortless, if, it, if you will. Um, so with the shoulders and the compensatory patterns that you spoke about from the kickboxing and the punching, where can you see some of those same things with the skier? And then if you want to, you can go ahead and talk a little bit about the, uh, the, the clinic that we're going to do in a couple of weeks. Um, so with the skier, I think a lot of what I see is more, less shoulder and more back. Um, people use their back a lot for that rather than using their body weight. Because mm -hmm. uh, if you think about the line of pull on the skier, you know, you start from this position and I see a lot of people just pull arms down and kind of bend the bend their back rather right. than sinking down like a squat and pulling that way like you would if you were skiing. Like if you were trying to, you know, propel yourself skiing, you're going to go down into a kind of a little bit more of a squatted position um, as you pull down, but also helps drop that body weight and get more momentum on that fan. Um, so I feel like with that, with the, with the ski erg, there's a lot more kind of lower back stuff um, <laughs> with a little bit of shoulder, but because we're only coming up to here for most people, depending on your height, um, yeah. it, I see a lot more of that back stuff because people aren't dropping down like they would if you were doing a med ball slam. Cause it's the same, it's the same movement as a med ball slam. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Of, you know, instead of throwing a ball down to the ground, now I got two different handles and I'm, doing that exact same motion um and sometimes people just don't make that connection but also sometimes people don't do med ball things right so uh <laughs> that's another very <laughs> true very true and in that same breath in terms of pulling taking hands overhead getting the, the hand over the elbow over the shoulder in this position i've seen as, as as a coach over my time early on as a young trainer thinking uh, you just got bad shoulder mobility that's why you can't press the way you need to press or get your head through the window if you will um, but i began to learn that <clears throat> it was more so about thoracic spine mobility at some times getting the, the upper back in bad positions that weren't allowing the shoulder to get where it needed to be or vice versa um, and, and for my injury, I think, honestly, just quite frankly, it might have been a little bit of inflammation having just come off of COVID. And I think there was compensation because I hadn't worked out in a couple of weeks and that rotator cuff was already bad. So so many things, kind of straw that broke the camel's back, if you will, uh, that just came in there. But having gone through rehab now and us working on trying to regain that range of motion, uh, I've learned a lot through doing that. But also I've learned a lot about my non-repair side in terms of the fact that I didn't have the mobility that I thought I did. There weren't things in my uh, thoracic spine that were moving the way I thought they were shoulder blades, things like that. Talk about some of those kind of realizations that people can kind of tune into a little bit as they do some overhead pressing and different variations with different implements that realizing, hey, you know what? This is a sign that it might not just be your shoulder. It also might be your spine and vice versa. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> so one of the biggest things, and I'll cover all this uh, in the clinic as well, but one of the biggest limiters to shoulder range of motion is going to be thoracic spine. Um, because what happens when you raise your arm is, you know, if I start, if I start in this position, you can see me kind of rounded like this. And, you know, this goes also back to <clears throat> corporate America 
we're all in computers, we're all kind of hunched over like this, um, rather than being up in kind of this tall position. But <clears throat> that aside, if I start from this flex posture here, this is all I got. Like that's all I can do. But as I extend that upper back, that range of motion comes back. Um, now a lot of people, because of you know, <clears throat> whether they're whether it be their job or prolonged postures at work or um, anything like that, uh, that thoracic spine just doesn't extend well. And because of that, <clears throat> you find out a lot of compensation in the lower back. Um, because if people can't raise their arm overhead, what's, what's the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to arch my back to try and get that further extension. As I reach for something, kind of arching that back rather than that upper back. Um, so a lot of times people compensate through their lower back. They don't keep their abdominals tight, their glutes tight as they kind of reach or do things. And because of that, that upper back doesn't, doesn't even have to move as much anymore because now I'm still getting that same range of motion. So that upper back just stays stiff and we get that compensatory and kind of excess motion in the lower back. Um, and then stay stiff in that upper back because we're not utilizing that motion. And if you don't use it, you lose it. Um, so the biggest, the biggest compensation for decreased kind of thoracic extension is going to be that lumbar extension um, and kind of lordosis. And because of that, then you get into lat length and things like that, where you know if somebody's arching their back every time they're raising their arm their lats are going to be tight because they're never going through their full range of their lats either. So it's, it's kind of a catch 22. Um, and there's a lot of, a lot of different things to touch on with that, but, um, right. yeah. That's good, man. Yeah. So for those of you listening, watching, <clears throat> um, at KPF, we're going to have Jonathan on August, uh, August 22nd at 10 a.m. Jonathan's going to come in and, uh, go further detail in person about uh, the shoulders and the kind of things that he's seen since the pandemic has started in the sense of uh, when the pandemic started uh, for most of us, for nearly everybody, uh, the way you used to train had to kind of be altered. Uh, you either had to stop, you either had to find household items go purchase things, or uh, you know, some people, some of us just fell off the wagon, but now as the world is back, opening back up, we're able to get back into the gymnasiums, we're able to get back into the places that we used to. And uh, as he said, it's just usually you lose it. And a lot of us have lost it. And as we try to get it back, um, we don't have the, the range of motion or the strength we used to. So we've seen a lot of that over the past, well, roughly I'd say 12, nine to 12 months, maybe. Yeah. And so um, <clears throat> we're going to talk about that. We're going to discuss that. But slightly switching gears a little bit here, Jonathan, you and your wife uh, have recently welcomed in a new baby boy, mm -hmm. uh, young, young Patrick. And um, I was talking to her just the other day and I, was, I didn't ever think about this, but she was, I was like, how you feeling? Et cetera, et cetera. She's like, I'm feeling great. There's this, there's that. She was like, having Jonathan home was really helpful because he was able to, he has been able to kind of help me with movement, getting things back where you need to be as far as the stresses of going through labor and things of the short. How has that, she seemed to have really enjoyed that fact that you were able to provide that for her. And that's something that I'm sure many mothers that are postpartum um, could probably benefit from in the sense of not only chiropractic care, but also just, they just carried a baby. They just carried an extra however many pounds for the past uh, nine months. Their body has changed. It's not the same that it used to be. Um, so as, as much as you want to with your own situation with, with your wife, um, but then more so what you might see in practice um, at the clinic, how can understanding movement patterns and compensations help a mother uh, that is postpartum? Um, yeah, I think, I think that's one of those things that not many people know about. Um, pelvic floor PT is extremely beneficial for one, not only just postpartum, but um, anybody who's having any kind of incontinence issues, um, Sometimes we, we have patients uh, with pain with intercourse, things like that. Um, those are all things that, you know, some females just think is normal. Oh, I just had a baby. You know, I, it's okay that I'm leaking a little bit of pain, 
a little bit when I jump or when I jump rope or anything like that. And that's for any mothers experiencing that. It's normal in a sense, but it's also not normal and we can fix that. Um, I think pelvic PT is one of those um, topics that just doesn't get discussed enough about um, and how much the pelvic floor and the lower back um, are correlated um, is incredible and it's it's something that people don't know about um, and it's something that we can help a lot uh, we help people every single day with that kind of stuff with the incontinence with stress incontinence urge um, maybe they have trouble emptying their bowels maybe they have trouble controlling their bowels anything like that um, we can really help with um, so going along with that I think my knowledge in that sense really helped um, Kelsey, uh, because I was able to talk through some of that with her and let her know that, you know, those things aren't normal. Um, those things that you're finding on your mommy group where they're talking about that, you know, it's not, it's not something that should be going on for as long as some of these people experience this. Um, and so being able to kind of talk her through that and encourage her to go see, um, a pelvic PT, as well as kind of, you know, watching her movement at home and kind of walking her through some of those strengthening exercises um, was extremely beneficial for her. And it's um, very beneficial for any, you know, postpartum mother or um, anybody. Sometimes it happens post-menopause, things like that. Um, really, anybody's experiencing those symptoms. We can definitely help a lot with that, um, not only with the uh, low back pain, but also um, any kind of public floor stuff. That's nice, man. That's good. It's great to hear. And as I was talking to Kelsey, um, I think that was last week, roughly, um, I brought it up to her because we've got about four moms that are postpartum uh, with uh, having newborns that were born in uh, either late 2020 or um, so far in the first half of 2021. And uh, when I stop to think about it, it's quite a few. And um, I can only imagine, as you mentioned, some of the mom groups that, that she's in, how that they just their experiences, sharing those experiences together and realizing this is normal, this is not normal. I'm not the only one that's experiencing this. I can share in this bond, if you will, and, and kind of get some help and some feedback. Um, I told I told Kelsey and some of these other moms that we have that want to actually have them on the podcast uh, to kind of talk about that and have an episode full of those kind of experiences because, again, just alone in our gym alone, we've had four in the past, like I said, four in the past, I'd say eight months, four new ones, and probably more than that. So um, thanks for that insight on that, brother. But the last topic that I really want to kind of dive into, and I know this was kind of fun, um, we've worked with what we call a restoration project, uh, where we take athletes that have had injuries and we kind of help them bridge that gap between uh, return to um, sport, return to competition after their physical therapy, after their injury. And um, so we're having relationships with PTs around the area there was quote unquote a shoulder specialist that I was going to go see after I tore my pec and I was, then you had been doing your, uh, uh, it's not your course, your, uh, uh, what is it that, uh, not residency. What is it that you do? Oh, okay. Yes. Yes. Your fellowship. You're doing your fellowship. And, all, and then I was talking to you. The reason you came to see, to train with us at KPF, I was like, you know what? I'm going to go with Jonathan. I'm going to work with Jonathan because he, is an athlete he's worked with athletes he uh and i consider myself a athlete although get washed up uh, an athlete and so i was like i'm going to work with jonathan for me it's been very good professionally to be able to kind of see what you do and how you do it in a different setting when you go into physical therapy with a middle school high school age male or female athlete that's come off a sport related injury um how frequently are you seeing those in the past, let's say five years, than maybe you saw them um, early on in your career? And is it something you think that's getting better in terms of us being able to use strength conditioning to help minimize that? Because I hate the word injury prevention, there's, there's no such thing. Um, but how have you seen that going, training in terms of, are we using the right things in our, in our school systems or in our private training, like what we have, 
to be able to help combat those injuries? Or is there more that can be done? It just what are you seeing in general? Um, I think the I think the strength and conditioning aspect of a lot of high schools needs work. Um, I think what y'all do is, or what happens at Nice Performance is much, much better than what the average person will get in any high school gym. Um, because, you know, I've, I've treated a couple of football players, I've treated a lot of volleyball players, um, but they just don't get the attention that they need in terms of, you know, the form um, aspect of things. And that goes for even not just lifting weights, but also translation over to the field. Um, I have this one offensive lineman that he was having foot pain. And I'm like, yeah, no, probably. I was like, yeah, no wonder you have football or foot pain the way that one, you, you power clean, squat, run, um, all of these things because he just didn't have the training that he needed. Um, I think the other thing that's happening a lot in sports too is we always want to be bigger, faster, stronger. Um, and so that leaves even a little bit less room for error because now we've got bigger people who are faster generating more power. You know, if we have one little instance of, you know, my foot's planted at a 30 degree knee bend usually if i was you know 10 pounds lighter and i wasn't producing this much force i wouldn't have an issue but now we got a torn acl mm -hmm. um so i think i think part of the thing with sports is we're we're developing these players to be extremely fast powerful and strong which is great but at the same time you know our bodies do adapt the tendons do strengthen but now they're trying or the ligaments sorry but now they're trying to resist a lot more force and a lot more power. Um, so that's why what y'all do at Nice Performance is so important to these athletes because, you know, training these movement patterns where it becomes um, reaction rather than something that they have to think about. Um, like, oh, when I plant my foot, I got to make sure I got to, you know, align this right. You know, that's what happens in the gym but repetition over and over and over and over and over again and kind of calling them out when they're doing it wrong is what builds that movement pattern and what decreases that injury rate. So I think I think in high schools, we don't get enough of it. And I think what happens at night's performance is what the rest of the world needs. You know, and to your point about the high school system lacking, I, I tell parents all the time when we get an athlete that comes in that has spent most of their experience in terms of learning what they do and do not know uh, from strength conditioning from high school, I say, look, first things first, most of the time, it's not your high school strength conditioning coach's fault, per se. It's just a matter of the situation. Uh, you're trying to deal with 60 to 70 kids, sometimes in the weight room at one time. Uh, you've got maybe one, if you're lucky, two people that are there to oversee what's happening. And that's just a, a logistical situation. I don't care how good of a coach you are. That's just an un, uh, unprob improbable uh, logistical situation to be able to keep your eye on everybody, give them everything they need to do. So that's definitely not to, to knock our high school coaches, particularly in our area. And I know that's not what you were doing at all. Um, but it's just hard to do. And I've got a friend that's in the uh, Spartanburg uh, uh, Spartanburg County Athletic Program. She's a strength conditioning coach. And... Uh, just, you know, carries a will talk shop and, you know, she's talking about the things that they're doing, the money that they're spending um, in their weight rooms. And some of these schools in Spartanburg County look like colleges. I mean, uh, I went to Furman University and almost every single one of these schools in Spartanburg County, their weight room has the same equipment, if not better equipment, and is bigger than than that one. This is a Division One college weight room. Um, then you look at schools in uh, Anderson County who are doing the same thing. And it's just, you kind of wonder when, with us in Greenville County sitting between the two, when we are going to recognize that or decide we want to put forth the effort to kind of elevate that so that we can minimize these chances, these opportunities for injury in our high schools and with our athletes and, you know, make that an investment because that's something, you know, that's a role that is valuable. Um, I said this to somebody else, when you look at high level professional teams and collegiate teams, 
the two people that spend the most time with athletes are the athletic trainer and the strength coach. The two most expensive rooms in those buildings are the training room and the weight room. And that's that case for a reason. And so you're spending that much time with a strength coach. You're spending a lot of time being mentored by that person. You're spending a lot of time maybe being a big brother, being a father figure, what have you, to that individual. So it goes so far beyond the X's and O's and the lifts and things like that. So I think that's for us, I think, obviously, from a, in the private sector, it's great to be able to offer that to athletes, but I'd really love to be able to see that something that's covered in a more broad fashion so that uh, we have less athletes that come to us with uh, just kind of teetering on the edge of injury. It's kind of like when they're done with us for our last session as we were about to send some of these kids off to, uh, to school. It's kind of like, I really wish you would stay with me, but I know you got to go kind of thing because they just really could benefit from so much more. And so seeing that from your perspective, um, kind of really reinforces the things that we need to do to kind of continue to educate that and, and get that word out there for sure. Um, Jonathan, man, I don't have any more questions, man. Is there anything that you want to talk about or cover from the perspective of anything that we've said tonight or that we haven't talked about? Um, not that I can think of. Uh, I think the biggest thing is when, when in doubt following an injury, ever in doubt go to pt first um and in south carolina we have something called direct access um now granted there's an exception for medicare um but with direct access you can go see a physical therapist um without a doctor's referral and oftentimes especially with how busy doctors are now um we can get you in a lot quicker than they can um and oftentimes you don't need to go see your medical doctor or urgent care um, because we're so highly trained in kind of musculoskeletal disorders that we're going to be able to tell um, if you need to go see a doctor. And, you know, especially when it comes to athletes, um, there's, there's no need to go see a doctor because I promise you I can diagnose you without anything, any imaging or anything like that. Um, and, you know, I actually did a presentation last night to probably 100 med, med students um, about how PT is beneficial. Um, and the sooner that you get in, all the research shows this, if, if you see a PT within 14 days of an injury, you've got a 93% success rate. Um, but I can't tell you how many people I get that are way beyond that 14 days because they go to the doctor. The doctor's like, oh, I don't know what you did. So now we got to order imaging and now we got to x-ray MRI and things like that. Now it becomes a chronic problem. Whereas if I had seen them seven days after the injury, they got a much higher um, success rate in therapy. They're spending a lot less money uh, because all that imaging is ridiculously expensive um and they're just going to have better outcomes um and that that goes for anything um you know i'll get on my soapbox whenever we have the class but uh i hate imaging <laughs> I, I hate mri x-rays <laughs> it's it's such a waste of time and money um but sometimes it can be extremely beneficial i will give mm -hmm. you know, i'll give it that um but go see a pt first um because the sooner you get in, the better and higher rate of success you're going to get um, and heal from that injury. Um, because time is of the essence, and the sooner after an injury you start your recovery process, the faster you're going to get back to what you want to do. Yeah, I, that was a thought when you were talking earlier that slipped my mind. I'm glad you touched on that for sure, um, because that's huge. Um, I kind of had a little bit of both, a little bit of both worlds or both of those scenarios after I tore my back, it's, I, I knew immediately, like literally I fell to the floor and I knew exactly what I had done. Um, I called the athletic trainer with the team. Fortunately, having that relationship, she was able to expedite me getting into the doctor. Um, and I guess it's kind of a good thing slash bad thing that is, was the same doctor that I had last seen almost 15 years ago in college. So we had a relationship and I was able to get in there. I saw him that same day, probably three hours later, and um, he got in there literally 
started feeling around. He's like, yeah, you tore it. And uh, I did. Now, that was literally all that happened from injury to the time I actually got the chance to see the doctor, I think, was three hours, yeah. which that doesn't that's not common. That's not common. <laughs> that's not common at all. So I was very fortunate in that regard. Um, but then going beyond that. So, okay, let's get your MRI scheduled. For, unfortunately for me, it's bad time. It was two days before Thanksgiving. So, of course, I knew there weren't going to be a lot of people available. They were like, we'll get you in, you know, the day before. It was That was a Tuesday, I think. I didn't get in until the next Tuesday. Then we didn't get the, my imaging. The lady, I was the last MRI in there for the night. The lady shows me my video, and it's a big, white, bright light on my shoulder right here like the whole thing was just lit up yeah. so clearly i knew something was wrong it was confirmed which again like you said we didn't really need all that to confirm what had happened we could i could literally feel my peck hanging in my armpit i know it's down there um and then it took another two or three days for him to get back to me and say hey we got this and when he finally did he texted me and said hey, we can get you on the table and i decided to wait a full month uh to go based on holiday and all that stuff but I got a little taste of just the typical path that people go through, but then being able to go see someone like yourself and it's an athletic trainer because you guys are so highly skilled and trained now is that you don't need a physician to be able to tell you what someone else can tell you now. And you can, like you said, direct access in South Carolina is extremely huge because you can bypass some of those things that you don't need. You know, for me, I needed surgery, so I had to have the doctor, but sometimes you can get right in, start getting treatment, start seeing things. And so the relationship with you and the relationship with Elite has been huge for some of our clientele because we've been able to get them in to see you literally the next day or whatever the logistics are of their scheduling, and they have benefited greatly from it. So we're very blessed to have you on as part of the factory family, man. And again, I just want to thank you for your time tonight, Jonathan, man. And uh, We'll, we'll definitely stay in touch and keep talking. And again, like I said, by the time you guys see this, it'll be probably a week before we have the clinic where Jonathan's going to talk about shoulders, really dive into that even more. Um, it's free. So definitely come on out and, and, uh, and learn a little bit. Then. Jonathan, thanks again, buddy. Thanks for making time. Uh, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Absolutely. Sounds good. Thanks, Ryan. See you. See you, buddy.